And he's the one who had to make the decision to alert the Soviet military to respond to this seemingly nuclear attack against the Soviet Union. Well, uh, many military officers might jump at taking uh, defensive measures, and this was an indeed how he felt. In later interviews, this is this man. At that moment, he knew he had 25 minutes, and he really needed every minute that was coming up to make a decision about whether or not to respond, whether or not to let the high command know what was going on. It was one of the most tense periods of the Cold War. In fact, not long before that, the Soviet Union had shot down uh, a Korean airliner, uh, killing 269 civilians, including one of our uh, senators or congressmen. Also, Ronald Reagan, as president, called the Soviet Union the evil empire, and the leader of the Soviet Union was highly aware of the tensions that existed, so war was this far away. And uh, if you lived through that period, I wasn't aware of what was going on at that time, other than it was the Cold War. And uh, Stanislav Petrov had a decision to make. And uh, he, before taking immediate defensive action, he sought clarity on the reality of the situation. He records that after five nerve-wracking minutes, electronic maps and screens were flashing as he held a phone and an intercom trying to absorb the streams of information coming in. And he decided that the launch reports were probably a false alarm. But I'm sure if we would have been in his shoes, the fear would have just overcome us at that moment, perhaps even paralyzed us. He was later reprimanded. Of course, it was a false reading from the satellites, the Soviet satellites. It wasn't a launch. And he very quickly thought through the issues and thought of the bigger picture. It showed that there were five missiles coming towards the Soviet Union, and he had always been taught that if the United States attacked, it would be a massive attack, not just five missiles that had been launched. And so he concluded that this was a false alarm, which was correct on his part. And uh, he knew that his wisdom was better than the computers at that moment because their system had been rushed into place in a response to an American system that was similar. Today in our world, especially with the events of this week, it is easy to become fearful of what's going on in our culture, our society, and around the world. It seems like every week, almost every day, there's news of something horrific and terrible happening. And we pray for those folks in Las Vegas, for those families who lost loved ones or who are maimed uh, for life through this shooting. And yet uh, we realize, and I think if we reflect on it, there is really no safe place in that sense. And uh, we could have been there, possibly. Who knows? Uh, there is an aspect of fear that's called destructive fear. There is a healthy sense of fear, and that's why I don't stand in front of a freight train, because I don't want to get run over. And we all have, and God gave us, a sense of self-preservation. And that is a healthy thing, that is a good thing. But sometimes there is a thing called destructive fear, and that tricks us into believing beyond what is reasonable, that the world is an ominous and a dangerous place. History is filled with men and women who said no to that impulse of destructive fear. They changed the world because they stood up to the destructive fear that could come over them. Imagine if they'd given in to the paralyzing effects of fear in their lives. Today we're going to see the Apostle Paul in this passage in the book of Acts. 
What if he had feared resistance or rejection on missionary journeys? He would have stayed home rather than embarking three different times on massive missionary journeys to share the message of Jesus Christ through the then known world. Or perhaps imagine the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. giving speeches filled with gentle hints about the evils of segregation and racism because he feared pushing too far. Instead, King championed civil rights in this country, movements against racial segregation in the United States. He put away the unreasonable destructive fear. Or imagine in that same era, Rosa Parks, the woman who would not give up her seat on the bus because she was a black woman. And during that same era, she submitted what is she had submitted to the driver's command to give her seat to a white person. Uh, we think about that. Or we think of a young schoolgirl named Malala over in Afghanistan. Uh, she would receive death threats from the Taliban, and she stood up to them. What if she would have given up? Because they abhor education for girls in that country. Instead, she became instead she became even more vocal about the educational rights of all children and all women. And she survived a 2012 assassination attempt and was a Nobel Peace Prize nominee in 2014 or in 2013 and 14. And then imagine ourselves being fearful of the world out there, or perhaps in your own circle of influence of other people. Because God has given you a mission and a vision as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And your heart, you know that it is to advance the church, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, if we're held hostage by the phobias of irrational worries and destructive fears of failure, harm, or rejection, uh, the question is, with all of these examples, including ourselves, as if, if we don't fulfill the mission God has assigned to us, who will? Who's going to do that? Let me pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with life today. Thank you for the very fact that you lend us the next beat of our heart, the next breath of our lungs. We thank you that you know us and you number our days and we can rest in you. And Lord, even though the world is a fearful place and there has been much that has occurred lately that just reminds us of that, we do pray that we would be people of courage that we would be people who would not give in to destructive fear, and that we would be a people who would honor and glorify you. We thank you for Grace Point Church. Thank you for our guests with us here this morning. Thank you for the word of God that's given to us in our own language. We thank you for that privilege, which many around the world do not enjoy. We thank you for our children downstairs and in the nursery and for those who minister in those areas of ministry. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for today, for these few moments we have together. And I pray for each one of us that we would have listening ears and teachable lives and hearts and that we would go from this place transformed because of an encounter with your word and with you and with one another. We thank you for this morning in Jesus' powerful and precious name we pray. Amen and amen. If you've been with us, you know we are uh, starting a new series out of the little letter of Ephesians in the New Testament. And one of the fundamental pillars of Bible study methods is to understand the historical context of whatever portion of Scripture we're looking at. And so before we get to the letter, the epistle from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus and other churches, and is given to us today, we have to look at the historical context of how that church started in Ephesus and what the city of Ephesus was like. And so we have started doing that is we've gone back to the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul visited this city 
on the west coast of Asia Minor, which is now present-day Turkey, on the Aegean Sea. And it was, Ephesus was a major center. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. In fact, when you see the term Asia in the book of Acts, it's referring to the political province, Roman province of Asia in Asia Minor. Uh, it's not all of Asia as we talk about it today, but it's just this province. And Ephesus was a city, a very cosmopolitan city. It was on the crossroads of all the trade routes to Rome and to points uh, east and uh, north and south. And Ephesus was known as a very great commercial center. But more than that, it was known as the guardian of the temple of Artemis, a pagan worship into a Greek god. The Roman god was Diana, but uh, Artemis is how it's referred to. And it was a massive structure, a massive uh, stone temple that was built in Ephesus. Some of the ruins are there today. If we could get on our jet and go to uh, Ankara, Turkey, and then take tour buses over to the site of Ephesus, we'd find the ruins there. And uh, it was known at that time as one of the seven wonders of the world. It was such a massive temple and a massive structure and an architectural feat of its day and its time. And so we are looking at the historical context of the book of Ephesus, and we're going back to Paul's journeys there. As Paul journeyed in his second and third missionary journey, in the third missionary journey where we're at in Acts 19, he spends considerable time there. We saw last week that he began teaching in the synagogues, which was his pattern, the Jewish synagogue. When they rejected his message of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, he left, took his disciples with them, and went and rented a hall in Ephesus and held classes there, basically, where he would uh, argue or convince or talk about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that last week, and he was there over two years, probably three years. And then we come to chapter 19, verse 21, or else verse 20, after uh, what Dave read for us today, we saw that there were many turning from their ways of magic. Ephesus was known as a very spiritual, religious place, not in a good sense, but in an evil sense. And there were many people who came to know Jesus as their Savior, and they gave up their former practices. And they had these scrolls of magic incantations that we would use. They were very uh, superstitious, and they would... They gave those up, and they burned them in the public. And it says in verse, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. In fact, earlier it said that all of this province of Asia was exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, there were mighty things happening here. And it says in verses 21 through 22 that uh, the apostle Paul had plans. You know, and one thing about us as human beings is we like to make plans and we're kind of distraught when our plans don't work out or when they're deflected or delayed. And so there's an issue. We can become fearful when our plans are delayed, whether it's retirement plans, whether it's school plans, marriage plans, relational plans, whatever it may be. When those are deflected or delayed, we can become fearful about that. And so in verses 21 through 22, we can become fearful when plans are interrupted. And we notice uh, three ways the Apostle Paul looked here. He looked back, he looked forward, and he looked at his present situation. Look at verse 21. Now, after these things were finished, in other words, the Apostle Paul, it's a high note. I mean, people were coming to know Jesus as Savior. It says the Word of God was growing mightily and prevailing. And, uh, you know, there's nothing like being on a mountaintop, is there? Being on a high because everything's going great. Uh, and if I may be a Jewish grandmother, watch out. That's when things fall apart. 
And uh, so the Apostle Paul was looking back, but then he purposed in his spirit, look at verse 21, to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, I have been there, I must, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he's looking forward. He looked back at the wonderful ministry they'd had there. Now he looks forward. Over in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where he's writing to the church at Corinth, which is across the Aegean Sea on the Isthmus of, of Greece. It, it, Corinth was a city over there. He'd already been there. But he says in verse 5 of six, chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, which was to the north. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. And so we start getting the idea that there are many who are opposing the ministry of the Apostle Paul as he shares about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he looks forward and he wants to go to Macedonia and Achaia and then to Jerusalem because he's taking a collection from those churches there for the saints in Jerusalem because they're in famine, they're in deep distress, and the churches are helping them and they're sending this gift with the Apostle Paul and those who are working with him. And eventually he wants to go to Rome and on to Spain, uh, we know. And so the Apostle Paul has plans and yet he's looking forward and then he looks at the present in verse 22. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Again, he's staying on at Ephesus to minister there. And so there are uh, the potential of being fearful when our plans are interrupted. Peace is the opposite of fearfulness, isn't it? Uh, we don't like being fearful, but we like peace, whether it's world peace, national peace, individual peace, peace in the family. But peace is the ability to remain faithful in the midst of the panic of your past, of your present, and of your future. None of us knows what the future holds, and it can be a fearful thing. It's interesting to me that, uh, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning is the time when the panic sets in. If you're familiar with that, you, know, you wake up and you start thinking about things that are out of your control, and uh, there can be uh, peace in the midst of that kind of panic in your past, future, and in our present we see the Apostle Paul was involved in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And we should take note of this, take note of his patterns in the book of Acts. Remember the book of Acts is the church history book. The church came into existence in Acts chapter 2. It is a transitional book from the Old Testament economy that we see in the Gospels and in the Old Testament to a New Testament economy when we go to the rest of the letters in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul had very successful ministries. Even though he had much adversity, he evangelized the then-known world, he and his team. And uh, there's a contrast when we think about churches today, evangelical churches. We call ourselves evangelicals, meaning we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And sometimes what we do is a little bit shallow compared to what the Apostle Paul did. Notice these things. Our evangelism in the 21st century tends to be what some have called too ecclesiastical. That's just a fancy word for too churchy, okay? 
uh, we invite people to church, which is good. We should do that, but that's not the final answer. Whereas Paul took the gospel out into the secular world. He went to the marketplace. That's where he was. He was in the midst of people. Now, each one of us has an arena of influence or contact where we, whether it's our workplace, our school, our neighborhood, perhaps even your own family. And there is the arena that God has placed you in to be the one to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Sometimes uh, our evangelism is too emotional, appeals for a decision without adequate basis of understanding. In fact, in the great revivals of this country, the old school evangelists would not believe somebody who said they had believed in Jesus Christ that day. They had him wait six months so they could observe their life, observe how attentive they were to the teaching of the apostles to determine whether or not they were saved or not. Paul taught, reasoned, tried to persuade uh, the people that came across his path. You can see that he was very good at that. And thirdly, it's sometimes too superficial, making brief encounters and expecting quick results. Of course, that's the American way. We want results right now, don't we? And yet, that's not always how it works. Paul stayed in Corinth and in Ephesus for up to five years, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, faithfully sowing the word of God, and in due time, reaping a harvest. So when our plans are interrupted, uh, the question is, is can I remain faithful and recognize that God is in control? Secondly, in verses 23 through 28, uh, we fear when opposition mounts or when opposition increases to our faith. If you've been a believer very long and if you've tried to share your faith, you've probably met some opposition to the truth. Look at verses 23 through 28. About that time there occurred no small disturbance according, uh, concerning the way. The way is a, an early form of what they would call the church or Christians. Christian was not adopted until later in the book of Acts. But the way was, uh, was a, a name for the church, probably because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so followers of Jesus were known as the way. And there was a disturbance. In verses 24 through 28, it tells us what it was about. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. He was probably making small home shrines out of silver, and other craftsmen were making things because they were capitalizing on the great temple of Artemis. They were making a lot of money because all the pilgrims would come through, go to the temple of Artemis, and they would sell them these little shrines. It's kind of like when you go to the Empire State Building, you can buy a little pewter Empire State Building to bring home and put on your shelf. Or many other places do something similar. And so this Demetrius uh, called together, it's basically... Uh, he got the businessmen's club together, and he said, hey, wait a minute, we're losing money because of this. He gathered these together, the workmen of similar trades, and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. So anytime you mess with somebody's paycheck, there's going to be problems, isn't there? Okay? You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall in disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And so there's an aspect when we stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan knows that, the demonic realm knows that, 
And people who do do not know Christ know that. And so there is going to be opposition and resistance. And it can get very personal. You notice Demetrius names Paul because he has been there for a couple of years teaching. He's got a reputation for teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it becomes angry. Notice in verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so that is uh, opposition mounting, it's increasing, and fear is a potential response to that. And I see it today in our day and age when, uh, especially among us evangelicals, when we think we're losing some of our rights, I can see the fear rise and we start getting upset and mad at the government or whoever for infringing upon our rights. So there's an aspect where opposition mounts, the tendency is to strike out in fear and anger. And then verses 29 through 34, things get out of control. And when things are out of control, it can be very fearful. Uh, Out of control physically, out of control emotionally. Look at verse 29. The city was filled with confusion and they rushed into one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. So they physically grabbed these guys, drug them into the theater, In fact, uh, some of you have been to Ephesus, and that theater is still there. You can go there. It's a very large theater. It's right at the end of the main thoroughfare that that is like 30, 40 feet wide, and the the theater is still there, and it seats, uh, some estimates are 25,000, others 45,000. Remember, Ephesus was a city of about 300,000, and the whole city, according to Luke here, is in an upheaval, an uproar. And when Paul wanted to go to the assembly, the disciples would not let him. They would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, these are the the community leaders who Paul had befriended. Perhaps some were believers in Jesus Christ who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the city. So the apostle Paul was even held back from going. He was going to go. He was not fearful, but he wanted to rectify this situation. There's an author, uh, Barbara Brokoff, who uh, wrote a book called Grapes of Wrath or Grace. And in it, she tells the story of a group of American tourists who were taking a bus tour in Italy of Rome. And they were led by an English-speaking guide as they went around Rome. And their first stop was at a big basilica near a piazza. And it was surrounded by several lanes of relentless Roman traffic. And after they were all safely dropped off, the group climbed up the stairs for a quick tour of this basilica, of this church. And then they, uh, when they were done, they spread out to board the bus, which was now parked across all these lanes of traffic uh, to get back there. And the frantic guide shouted to all of them for the group to stay together. He said, you cross one by one, they hit you one by one. But if you cross together, they will think you hurt the car. They won't hit you. And so there's always something about unity in the believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians, when we get there, will tell us that we already have the unity the Holy Spirit provides. It is up to us to work to maintain that unity. And here in this passage, in the face of fear and upheaval and things out of control, uh, the Apostle Paul had unity with his fellow uh, disciples, fellow people that were with him. In verse 32, uh, Verse 33, uh, well, back in verse 32, they were shouting one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Sounds like a lot of crowds, doesn't it? 
And uh, some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward and having motion with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the Jewish population, the Jewish people there put forth Alexander. He was probably one of their leaders. Uh, he was not necessarily a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, but they put him forward. And everybody, the pagan worshipers there, recognized that he was from the Jewish population. And they began shouting about Artemis, about their pagan god that they worshipped. And so uh, there is fear when things seem out of control and increasingly in pressure. Peace is the ability to remain in self-control in the midst of uncontrollable circumstances. When you really give it some thought, there's very little in our lives that we control. Uh, you know, and for those of you who are control freaks, I'm sorry to tell you this, but there's very little that you can really control. I've told you many times before when we lived in Dallas, our oldest daughter got her driver's license, went through driver's ed. We had one car, and it was my beloved Monte Carlo SS. And I remember the day, I remember the day where she did her solo trip, and she got into that car and took off out the driveway. I was at the window watching her leave, and she went around the corner into Dallas traffic, and I thought, I don't control this. God, you do. She is yours. And uh, she did just fine, although I noticed the rear tires would get involved, you know, a little <laughs> quicker than I would have thought. I haven't figured that one out yet. But, but uh, you know, there's out-of-control things, and peace is the ability to remain in self-control in the midst of uncontrolled circumstances. And I think all of us face uncontrolled circumstances. And all of us live in that world. And in verses 35 through 41, uh, there is fear even in the midst of unexpected solutions. And here we have this uh, aspect or this report that the problem was solved uh, not by Paul. The problem was solved not by Alexander or by these other people but it was solved apart from any of their efforts. Look at verse 35. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk, he was like the scribe who was over. He, they kept the records, and evidently he was quite good at crowd control and uh, taking care of people. He said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of Ephesus is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? Uh, some scholars and archaeologists believe that the image, the statue that was in the temple of Artemis was actually a meteorite uh, that looked somewhat like a female figure that was put up there, and they get that from this. Verse 36, so they, these are the undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. You have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in a lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events. Since there is no real cause for it and in this, in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Quite an unexpected solution, and yet when you look at Roman law, if the people would continued in a riotous fashion, Rome would have taken note. 
and would have taken care of the situation. And that's what this town clerk was afraid of. And he was uh, taking care of it because he knew Rome would deal with it if they did not deal with it. And so the problem was solved apart from beliefs, but the resistance was still there. The Apostle Paul still meet with that. You know, there is a peril of patronage. We are in the danger. We live in a country where we have a freedom of speech. Uh, we have people in Congress who we appeal to uh, when we think our rights are being violated, and yet there is a danger of the church relying on the government to protect us and defend us. One writer said, uh, notice the peril of patronage. Here the town clerk speaks a word for the Christians in Ephesus. I'm not sure that was good. I think this is John R.W. Stott wrote this. It may have been bad. Less than 40 years after this, in Ephesus, the Christian church has a word from the Lord Jesus that is this. I have this against you. You have left your first love in Revelation. And I've, as I've mentioned many times, if you go to Ephesus today, you see ruins, you see a marsh. You don't see any Christians unless they're tourists wandering up and down the streets. There's a little uh, Islamic village nearby, and so far as I know, there's not a single Christian there. It's a perished city, a perished church. It does not exist anymore. J. Campbell Morgan once wrote this, The church persecuted has always been a church pure, and therefore the church powerful. The church patronized has always been a church in peril and very much a church paralyzed. May God deliver us from that kind of destiny. May God help us to realize that the reality of salvation in Jesus Christ truly experienced leads to joy, fruitfulness, and a ministry that will be a saving ministry to the world. May God help us here at Grace Point to learn these important lessons. And may we not cave in to the patronage of government officials or anybody else. Peace is the ability to remain patient, waiting for God's solution in the midst of the unexpected. All of this goes back to belief in, is God really in control? If you were <clears throat> in the midst of this crowd, this riotous crowd, and you were Gaius or Aristarchus, that would have been the test. Is God really in control? Or is this, am I out here and I'm going to get slaughtered because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and not, do not lean into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. It doesn't mean life will be an easy thing. It is difficult. And yet it's because of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have a future and a hope and a sovereign God who will carry us through. There was a missionary named J.W. Tucker. He was beaten and with 60 others of Christian compatriots, he was thrown into a river in Africa that was crocodile-infected. Uh, it wasn't ISIS or Al-Qaeda or the Taliban that claimed responsibility. The attack took place November 24, 1964, at the hands of Congolese rebels. Our natural instinct is to feel sorry for J.W. Tucker, whose earthly life was cut short in that event. But a life can't be cut short when it lasts for eternity. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have eternal life, present possession. A holy empathy for his wife and children who survived the terrorist attack is biblically mandated, but heaven gained a hero, a hero in a long line of heroes who traced their genealogy back to the first Christian martyr. Of course, that would be Stephen early on in the book of Acts. 
in the grand scheme of God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, eternal gain infinitely outsets and outweighs earthly pain. God doesn't promise us happily ever after. He promises so much more than that. Happily forever after is what he does. It was the internal, and it was that eternal perspective that inspired J.W. Tucker to risk his earthly life for the gospel. Tucker didn't fear death because he'd already died to himself. It wasn't an uncalculated risk that led J.W. Tucker into the Congo during a civil war. He counted the cost with his missionary friend, Morris Plotz. Plotz tried to convince his friend, do not go. If you go in, he prophetically pleaded, you will not come out. To which Tucker responded, God didn't tell me that I had to come out. He only told me I had to go in. Heavenly Father, this morning, there may be some here who are fearful about their life.